0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the director of the Global Symmetry Project. Uh, Much of our uh, research work can be found at the uh, globalsymmetryproject.com website. Please uh, look us up. There you will find our e-journal, Global Symmetry, our Global Symmetry YouTube channel, where various interviews uh, have been done, The Rising Brixham blog is also there, as are the three uh, podcast series, the Now series, the Summit Dialogue series, Shaking the Global Order uh, series as well. In fact, today's um, podcast will be in uh, the uh, Shaking the Global Order series. In fact, this is part of Series 2, Episode 2. And we're very pleased to be able to bring back into the studio uh, Thomas Wright from Brookings to explore Biden foreign policy in the wake of the first U.S.-China summit. That summit took place on March 18th and 19th. And then we will uh, also explore uh, uh, a fair bit on uh, what arose from uh, President Biden's first official press conference that occurred uh, a week later. Tom is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in the project on international order and strategy, both of which are at uh, the Brookings Institution. Tom has been very active writing on contemporary politics and the impact of Trump and now Biden on American foreign policy continues to write uh, in the Atlantic Magazine on uh, uh, Democratic Party uh, foreign policy. Tom's most uh, recent uh, publication, in fact, uh, is due out on uh, in August, and it's a co-authored book with Colin Call of Stanford, entitled "Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics, and the End of the Old International Order." So, you know, get out there and pre-order it. So. Uh, It's a real pleasure to have Tom back in our virtual studio. Let me uh, bring him in and we can begin uh, the the conversation. So, Tom, I thought we would start with the uh, Alaska Summit. As you know, it took place March 18th, 19th, uh, and it involved the top China um, foreign policy folk. That is uh, Yang Jiechi and uh, Wang Yi and uh, top U.S. officials, uh, Anthony Blinken and and Jake Sullivan on the national security side, right? Um, In your recent article in the Atlantic, uh, the article is entitled, the U.S. and China finally get real with each other, which is very recent. Uh, You hinted at the meeting being an opening uh, to a new cold war. You said, for an astonished press, Witnessing the exchange was like being present at the dawn of a new Cold War and seemed to sum up just how bad the U.S.-China relationship had become. Are we uh, uh, thinking about a new Cold War, Tom? Is that what what we witnessed uh, at Alaska?
1: Well, uh, you know, Alan, as you know, like that was sort of a setup to say I didn't really agree with the characterization and of the press on it. but. Look, I think it was an interesting meeting. Um, I think we still don't know um, all of the details about what happened. What we're told is that, you know, we saw with our own eyes the first hour of exchanges. We're then told by U.S. officials that to a large extent the meeting returned to normal, you know, and uh, that the tone taken by the Chinese officials was, um, you know, was much less confrontational and there's some speculation that their message at the beginning was aimed at a home audience, right? So I think we may find out more over time, but we're still um, uh, sort of piecing it together. I, I actually thought it was a good meeting in, in the sense that I think the risk coming into a Biden administration was that there will be sort of a false dawn of a reset, right? That um, there will be a meeting in which Uh, both sides sort of stressed their common interests, um, said they were going to work together on climate and the pandemic and all of these shared challenges, promised to sort of minimize cooperation. And then um, nothing changed, you know, on the actual behavior. And you would see uh, China, but also the US, sort of in the real world, continuing to sort of confront each other, right. And I think that is a real thing. And it's, sort of baked into the cake at this point. Um, And so I think there was a risk that the meeting would be divorced from reality. And I think what happened instead was that it was firmly rooted in reality because it reflected the fact that the relationship is very strange, that the United States and China are in a strategic competition with each other, that that is sort of deeply rooted and unlikely to change. And I think it's a necessary prerequisite for a... Strategic conversation that the Chinese side has always refused to have for the last decade or so, which is to acknowledge, um, you know, to acknowledge that that, that there is, you know, a, a competition or there is a rivalry, and they bear uh, some, uh, at least, maybe a lot of the responsibility for that. But that we need a conversation about what that's going to look like, you know, and how do we manage that? How do we sort of acknowledge? You know, that there are sort of real differences, how do we better understand each other and how do we avoid unintentional, you know, provocations and and that I think is, so I see this as sort of a as a as a first step to a more frank strategic conversation.
0: Well, So let's just go back though to that intro so so what do you attribute that first kind of exposure public exposure between the two sides was this. Was this just pure theater? What was it?
1: Well, I think. Why, why would you too, do it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of explanations. Like in his remarks, Wang Ji said that um, said that he was adjusting his remarks because of Secretary Blinken's opening, in which he criticized um, China on human rights and other grounds, and said it was a threat to the rules based international order. And then he spoke for 16 minutes, you know, and there was an agreed limit of two minutes. And as you know, with meetings of this sort with China, protocol is everything, right? There's a lot of negotiation that goes into how long each will speak, who will be at the table, what the COVID protocols are. I mean, all of this is, it's where a lot of the negotiation happens Mm -hmm. um, in the early stages. And so they blew through that and, you know, their explanation would be, I think, that they were adjusting... To the remarks and also to U.S. sanctions on Hong Kong officials in the preceding days, and they would say, and I think they probably did say, you know, you're not being very good hosts, and so we are going to, you know, push back. Mm-hmm. Um, that's their explanation. Um, I think um, the other explanation, you know, which is the U.S. side believes, because I, I spoke to them about it, they believe that um, that China came in. Uh, to this, uh, prepared to, you know, uh, uh, um, that both both of them came in, prepared to um, have, have a confrontational stance, right? And they wanted to show um, that they were standing up for China. They wanted to send a message back home to the public um, and also do Xi Jinping's bidding. And they sent that message um, quite effectively from their perspective. And then when it was over, you know, then they went back to sort of the business of the meeting, um, so I think those are the those are the two um, sort of explanations. You know, I I don't believe that um, that the Chinese officials would sort of go ad hoc on this <laughs> on the moment. You know, I mean, I think all of this is pretty carefully scripted. I think it did work pretty well from what we can tell from the analysis of media and social media in China. It worked pretty well for them. Um, in China and I think it did um, sort of send a message and I think it was consistent with moves they were making in advance including this ridiculous sort of show trial of the two Michaels that took place I think one part of that took place the day of the meeting and the other um, uh, Spavor trial took place a few days before so I think all of this was part of um, sort of wanting to look tough uh, from you know from their side
0: so send, send a message. What is it that the Chinese official, because clearly a 16 minute, you know, tirades too strong, but you know, kind of expression of distaste for the United States foreign policy. Uh, it, it, it could not have been ad hoc. I just, nobody believes that one. So, so what's, what's, what's the message that they're sending to their own people?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, one you said did say in his remarks, like he literally said, since you w- did not, you know, conform to the norms and tone that we expect in these meetings, I am now going to depart. Right. So I yeah. totally agree. I don't believe it. That is what they said. Right. I don't I don't believe it's true <clears throat> But that, you know, that was his explanation when they, when, right. when they made the remarks. Um, You know, I think the message which you're seeing in Europe this week with the sanctions and what you saw with the trial and you see every day really is that, look, you know, we are not going to be lectured by you. Um, We are going to push back ferociously whenever you or your people criticize us. Um, And the subtext is this is the second crisis in 10 years, global crisis that we have emerged stronger from than you. Uh, the correlation of forces, the balance of power is shifting. Um, we don't really care, you know, what you sort of say. And I, I think they do, but they're saying, we don't really care what you say to us in these forms. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, even if there's a cost uh, and people, you know, describe us as wolf warriors or you know, our soft powers to minister, we're going to press ahead regardless. Mm-hmm. And we may even overreact, you know, deliberately. Um, and that, that, I think, is... Um, That is where they're at at the moment, I think.
0: Okay, so...
1: They're they're unilateral actions.
0: Right. So notwithstanding, uh, you you seem to suggest that you don't acknowledge um, that this is, you know, a a new Cold War or Cold War 2.0, as some people have described it. Nevertheless, there does seem to be an ideological dimension here. It's not the old Marxism versus democracy dimension, but if you listen to to Tony, uh, to Anthony Blinken's views and others, uh, there does seem to be an autocracy versus democracy dimension. So how is that not then, you know, in a sense, dividing the world again uh, uh, from an American perspective? It's different than the old one, but it's still there. You've got this ideological cleavage here.
1: Well, I I think that I really don't know how much some of these terms help us because they become sort of lightning rods and then people yeah. immediately to jump to what the differences are and they say they're self-fulfilling prophecies. And right. you know I think there's a whole cottage industry of is it or is it not, you know, a new Cold War. And I just don't really know if, if we um end up in, in in a more informed place, you know, as a result of that. I can tell you what I think is happening uh, <laughs> analytically in terms of the international relations of it, uh, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I think that the 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 notion of a universal rules based order, which is always imperfect and always, uh, you know, unfinished, has basically come to an end in the sense that the major powers in the world, um, including Russia and China, the United States, maybe the EU or some individual countries in Europe and Japan, there is a fundamental difference between them on what is sort of legitimate uh, internationally and domestically and on sort of the rules of the road. And so that hope of what we've spoken about before of convergence is, is gone. And I think each side feels threatened by the other. And I think um, they are probably not wrong to feel that way. You know, uh, I think the CCP in China you know, I think our system does pose a challenge for them, you know, for their regime stability and, and uh, openness and, you know, the media and all of this, I think, does, uh, you know, a lot of us see that as, a, has always have always seen that as a side benefit, right? That over time, you know, if they engage, they'll be compelled to liberalise and they don't want to do that. And I think we feel insecure because some of the things they're doing and the negative externalities negative externalities of that. So we've, you know, again, we've spoken about that on earlier podcasts uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. before. So I think that's what's fallen apart. I think what we're seeing in its place are two different systems of domestic governance, maybe of international, you know, governance and norms. And those systems are overlapping and intertwined, which is obviously a huge difference you know with the with the cold war and um, they're mm-hmm. sort of intermeshed mm-hmm. and the big question which i hope us china bilateral relations will be able to answer or at least address over the next decade is what is the relationship between those two systems you know how are they going to interact with each other what are sort of the the contours of legitimate contestation and where is cooperation sort of possible and how does this sort of unfold? Because this is sort of evolving in front of us, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, and there's a real reason behind both. I mean, I think there's a reason why we're trying to, you know, deepen cooperation amongst democracies. And I think from Beijing's perspective, there's a reason behind what they're doing, right? And each side is partially decoupling from the other, uh, at least to a limited extent, right? Um, And we can talk about that, but I think a little bit of that is happening at least, Um, So I think a frank conversation about, you know, about, you know, the fact that we are in a world of different competing systems um, that are intertwined, you know, that we need to, we need to talk about that. Now, you know, I, I think to go back to the Cold War analogy, you know, again, I think that distorts the actual issue in front of us, right? Because from the beginning there, those systems are very separate. You know, they they were they they didn't really overlap at all, um, and it, it, you know there just weren't there was a lot of complexity, but not this type of complexity, and um, and so I, I I prefer to sort of look at it just in terms of let's just talk about what we think is happening, and leave the labels sort of at the door and 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 go through that rather than um, you know rather than sort of harking back to.
0: Right, an earlier Soviet
1: com-
0: competition, right. So, so <clears throat> let's kind of uh, try to get a, even a more precise feel for this. And I, um, I wonder whether or not, I mean, in effect, you've uh, you know, to a degree adopted the view that was expressed by our uh, colleagues who are now uh, officials in this administration, namely uh, Kurt Campbell who is now the so-called Asia czar and Jake Sullivan who is of course the uh, senior uh, national security advisor and of course they wrote a piece in 2019 uh, which is titled in part competition without catastrophe right and they wrote going forward Washington should avoid becoming an eager suitor of transnational challenges. Uh, Eagerness can actually limit the scope for cooperation by making it a bargaining chip. Although it may seem counterintuitive, competition is likely essential to effective cooperation with Beijing. In the zero sum strategic mindset of many Chinese officials, perceptions of US power resolve matter enormously and the Chinese bureaucracy has long focused on shifts in both. So that was in 2019. I mean, is is that how you see Well, more important, is that how you see uh, Washington these days, the new administration? Uh, Is that the frame that they're using uh, for their uh, uh, foreign policy, particularly with respect to China?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty close to it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Jake Sullivan and Kirk Campbell are two of the, if not the top two, at least two of the top three. Right. Lincoln. Sort of architects of um, this China policy, you know. So I think it does, you know, it does reflect. their obviously, they they wrote that pretty recently, um, and you know, I, before they went in, I talked to both about it multiple times. I think it's, you know, this is a, <clears throat> this is an issue that they've both obviously thought very deeply about and spent a lot of time wrestling with, and I think spent a lot of time you know, writing that article, trying to figure it out, you know, and in in real time sort of come up. I would just underscore one point they made in that, which is, um, I think for many of us, it's a false dichotomy to say, you know, there's competition and cooperation and you got to dial back competition and dial up cooperation, or if you cooperate in shared interests, it will spill over to other issues you know, and so we need to sort of choose our own, you know, you know, choose what we want to sort of focus on. And to some extent, I don't think he's done this in office, but to some extent, John Kerry's view, I think, you know, was a little bit closer to that, you know, we got to work on climate, we got to work on this stuff. And if you compare this meeting to the strategic and economic dialogue in 2016, I know it was a different era, right? right? But it's unbelievably different, right? You, You had to communicate then it had 120 areas of cooperation. It included the type of uh, machines used in boilers in industry, you know, and sister cities initiatives and Korea and all of, you know, so it's just a very different, very different outlook. Um, I think that they believe that that, you know, that's a, um, a false sort of choice and that cooperation is incredibly important, but it's incredibly complicated cooperation with rivals is, 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 is difficult. It has different dynamics. It has different incentives. You need to be careful about not creating incentives for leverage. Right. I think that's something they'll also be worried about. Um, You know, it doesn't necessarily spill over in a positive way and they don't say this, I think, but I would that, um, you know, my view is that, um, you know, ultimately with, with, with Moscow and with Beijing, what infuriates them more than more than a lot of things from the US is the, um, is the position that you don't really understand your interests if you sort of do this. You know, if, 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 if you only understood your interests correctly and you were to cooperate with us, you know, we're sort of benign and that that will result in a positive sum future and you'll have a stake in our international order, right? Putin always thinks... To him, that's, you know, he just always recoils at that because he 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 sees it in more zero-sum ways, right? I think Beijing have always, they've always had a very real politique dimension to their diplomacy, right? And I, I think rather than sort of appealing to some of these higher sort of notions of order, you know, a more pragmatic discussion you know that acknowledge the differences and also acknowledge the real politique of it and actually negotiated with them on that basis with a view to the principles that we're trying to uphold and with a view to the order we're trying to protect, you know, might be more productive. Mm. You know, and so I think that's I think that's sort of what they were partially getting at is, you know, we have to be, you know, we have to be careful. It's not if we just led with if they just led in that meeting with here's all the things we want to work on that wouldn't have necessarily positively affected the relationship. If their behavior wasn't changing on, you know, the, all of the areas of difference, right. They continued to push on Taiwan, continue to, you know, you know, all the stuff, you know, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, all, all the, all the, the usual right. list. The
0: flashpoints. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, But, you know, referencing you and your recent article, uh, which you just wrote in The Atlantic, uh, again, the U.S. and China finally get real with each other. Uh, You say organizing the relationship around cooperation is theoretically desirable as an end goal, but will be unattainable for the foreseeable future. Uh, given the unfolding reality of an ass- assertive, repressive China and a defiant America. And then you go on to say, but friction is necessary given China's play for dominance over the past several years, and, and you go on. But the question I have for you is, okay, so where is the collaboration in this relationship uh, now maybe maybe you know the response is well yeah but in in the in the private meetings there was more uh, collaboration going on of course we don't have a readout of, of that so we don't know what was said after uh, these guys went behind closed doors but you know it's hard to see where the collaboration is Tom based on your view yeah. and their view I do think
1: there's some scope for it but I would say I don't see collaboration as a prerequisite requirement for these meetings right i mean i think at the the most basic level these meetings are about sort of better understanding each other's positions Mm -hmm. like understanding where there is on on you know the issues that they went over including iran and, and 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 other issues north korea you know to to have a bit of an understanding where some pragmatic you know coordination can occur where there are shared interests and to avoid unintentional provocation. I mean, there'll be lots of times when each side wants to provoke the other. Mm-hmm. Well, they should do so deliberately, right, and not by accident. And so this is partly about, I think, ensuring that, you know, that that can happen deliberately and not not inadvertently. Um, more broadly, though, you know, I think, um, I think that this list won't surprise you, but I think there is, um, maybe one or two things might surprise you. I don't know, let's see, but I... You know, I think on, on climate, obviously, there's some area of cooperation. Yeah. I think there's also areas of competition on climate, you know, and I think that, that they'll, they'll be, mer- you know, that both those tracks will be pursued. This competition for clean tech, you know, and first mover sort of advantage on that. Um, some of those um, materials necessary are, are scarce. Um, you know, there's uh, exporting of different sort of models to other countries for clean tech. There's all... So there's a competitive dimension to that. Um, um, but there is some cooperation. I think the pandemic public health is, is complicated. Um, there is some scope, but you know we did 17 years of cooperation after SARS and it didn't yield what it promised uh, in, 20, in December 2019. Um, so I think there will be um, some overlap, but also some sort of dual tracking where there's parallel Forums and coalitions to deal with that. Um, one thing I would like to do, you know, I think if this bilateral dialogue actually, you know, uh, 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 was productive or, you know, showed promise, would be to have some, an honest conversation about interdependence and uh, an honest conversation about maybe the mutual benefits of a limited and even coordinated decoupling. Like what are the areas where both sides may be better served if they were a little more autonomous, (laughs) you know? What are you thinking
0: of there? I mean,
1: um, well, I think there's ways in which we're vulnerable to them and we're very unhappy with that. And there's ways in which they're very vulnerable to us and they're unhappy with it. And we're desperately trying to, to reduce our vulnerability to them unilaterally. And they're trying to do it to us unilaterally and there are different areas that they're mainly worried about the, you know, financial side and a bit on semiconductors and other things. And we're worried about, you know, sort of cyber 5G, you know, maybe AI, some other things. Um, so uh, I'm not sure there's anything that can be done, but I do think it will be useful to actually have a conversation where each side acknowledged, you know, that, you know, that mutual independence um, is, Uh, somewhat destabilizing and is there a way to keep the good bits while you know while managing the risk um again it gets back to my idea of sort of avoiding you know inadvertent provocation like and i think understanding um you know understanding each side has an interest in a healthy global economy but each is going about that in a very different way you know and to some extent those ways are incompatible but at the end of the day we still want a healthy global economy, right? So, so I think having a more strategic conversation about that, um, uh, I think will be will be beneficial.
0: And how? How? Just so I understand, how are we going about both sides? Uh, you know, uh, the the evolution of the global economy in in different ways. I mean, what is it? Where Where are the points of conflict here that you that you're thinking of? In the development well, of the global they, economy,
1: they um, well, firstly, I think they for just on, in terms of reducing their vulnerability. You know, mm-hmm. they for some time have been trying with the Made in China 2025, and uh, yeah, that's their initiatives are trying to, you know, become more autonomous and self reliant on high end technology, and you know, reduce their dependence um, on the West and on the U.S. and Um, I think they also, when it comes to financial sanctions and, you know, SWIFT has been a long running one, obviously, I think that's somewhat complicated, but I think there are some prospects of more internationalization of the RMB, you know, after the pandemic, just because of, you know, the interest rate differential and Chinese central bank and all of that. So
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, so I think that's a long-term goal of, of theirs. And then I think obviously, you know, they have an economic model that, you know, on reciprocity and other issues, you know, we see as, you know, as unfair and a challenge. And Trump saw it that way. I think Biden sees it that way um, as well. Um, So that was one side of the equation. I think on our side of the equation, you see this on supply chains, you know, the broader resilience agenda, uh, also on tech, um, you know, a, a desire to have, uh, greater integration with trusted allies and partners, um, and less maybe with those who, you know, wouldn't be defined as such. Um, with China being, you know, top of the list, there. So I think yeah. I think you see, and you see this Alan on Biden's, and again I think Jake Sullivan is sort of you know sort of an architect of this, going mm-hmm. on what he's written. But you you see more of a strategic. Uh, and I I know I mean that neutrally not not as a you know not necessarily as, as saying that that makes it better but a more strategic approach to international economic policy like where it's more integrated with national security objectives and there's a belief that the geopolitics of this ought to shape the um the trade agenda you know, both in terms of the type of system we have with allies and partners. So they're working on tax issues and other things. And then in terms of how that relates to the Chinese approach.
0: Well, let me ask you though. I mean, wouldn't uh, a, a common commission uh, group working on um, uh, the rules of the digital world or, you know, you know, the standards on cyber or AI, uh, wouldn't that make sense as opposed to simply this idea of decoupling?
1: Um, well, when I say decoupling, I'm talking about it in a, in a pretty limited way. You know, I don't think anyone is talking about decoupling. Very few people are talking about it very broadly, right? Uh, I actually think it's important to define it because I don't really think there's many people opposed to it, uh, as a matter of principle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there are also aren't that many people who, you know, support it completely, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we're all in that gray area in different sort of shades there. I mean, there are very few people who would say the US ought to have Huawei as a 5G provider and there should be no right. or to do away with Cepheus, right? And not have, you know, so, and, and also there are very few people who would say the U.S. shouldn't be trading with China. Allies shouldn't be trading with China. That's obviously, you know, just outlandish and uh, as a proposition. Okay. So, um, so what I'm talking about is sort of a limited decoupling. But on the on the issues that you raise, um, I think I think it's fine to have a conversation about that. But I think my and I, I think. My guess is the Biden people, their expectations of what that will yield are very low and limited, right? So, for instance, um, on cyber, you know, Obama got his deal, obviously, you know, which is quite limited. It's of some help, but you know, cyber is still an area where U.S.-China relations are defined by what divides us and not by the common interests, right? And. Um, you know, AI, I think is, you know, has definitely has a, a, quite a competitive, um, sort of edge to it. Um, so, um, you know, I think, look, agreements, as you know, and the original Cohen sort of formulation of this in, in the literature, um, reflect, um, a certainty, if not a certainty, a reasonable expectation about the balance of power. Mm -hmm. um, And also a reasonable expectation that core interests are sort of aligned. And right now in those spheres, the balance of power is totally unclear because it's very much sort of in flux and neither side sort of knows, you know, who's going to be up, who's going to be down and where it's going to end up. Mm -hmm. And also the way they define their interests is, is you know, um, are sort of largely at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. So I think what we need to do in these areas is ultimately we'll end up, and I, I talk about this in the piece, you know, eventually we'll end up in a place where we're in sort of a practical equilibrium, right? Where things are relatively, you know, just uh, stable or understood at least on a day-to-day basis. Um, and at that point, uh, I think other things are possible. Maybe ultimately including detente, to thawing of tensions, maybe some cooperation. I know bringing in cold war. Having said not no cold war analogies, but you know I think that's possible. But we need to. It's equilibrium we should be thinking about, right? Like what's the um, what? What is this? Ultimately, where is this relationship going to stabilize? And I think it, right. it, 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 we need to go through different phases to get to that point. We can't just sit down on day one and just say, "Yeah, this is what it's going to—you uh, know, this is what it's going to be."
0: So, so where does that leave the allies? Where does it leave the Japan, the EU, um, and Germany, and France, and the UK, and others? I mean, w- you know. Uh, what what is it that the United States then uh, wants uh, from these uh, others uh, in, you know, what still looks like very much a b- kind of bipolar conception here?
1: I think that the, the, you hear a few things all the time, right? You hear, you, and mainly from American analysts, you hear like, oh, don't make <clears throat> us choose, right? That's something that was, particularly popular five years ago or so Mm -hmm. um still bounces around a little bit you know then you sort of hear people say oh you have to choose right Uh, you know (laughs) that there will be um and you know this is particularly acute in europe i guess and in southeast asia um i think that you know firstly these challenges don't just affect the US, right? They affect these other countries in East Asia and in Australia and New Zealand. I mean, they are, Southeast Asia, you know, particularly obviously acutely aware of China's rise, the problems it's causing for them. They want the US to be involved. And that's why the Quad is sort of working there, right? Now they also obviously want to be engaged with China economically. I would say that, they no longer simply uh, believe in the mantra "Don't make us choose." Right? They choose all the time, and those countries largely choose the U.S. Um, Australia, I think, has chosen to push back against China at some considerable cost, rather than um, rather than to accommodate it. So I think that was always inevitable. They were never going to, you know, there is a sizable minority in Australia on the elite side are not sizable, but there is a non-trivial section of the elite that does want a better, you know, more cooperative relationship with Beijing. But for the most part, you know, the the overwhelming view is to push back. Um, So they are choosing, but when they choose, they still want some measure of engagement, right? So they're choosing to tilt toward the US on all of these things, but they want that position To be broad enough that it encompasses some economic and political relationships with Beijing. So uh, that's why I think, and and Zach Cooper, and uh, I'm forgetting his co-author, but at AEI, they have a a really good new report out that sort of documents the six, five or six different strategies countries actually have, uh, which are not just choosing, you know, not just make us choose or, or take sides, um, but sort of document the different nuances there. So yeah, that, that's so. That's just on 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 the Asia side. On Europe, um, you know, it's a little bit different. I think Europe is um, China policy is still pretty contested. Um, interestingly, it's the center right on business that is the most likely to want to engage in the old way. Um, parts of the center right do not. and want to push back. The Greens, for the most part, the Social Democrats, um, you know, actually want to push back. Uh, in Germany, the Greens are pretty strong critics of China, as is, you know, SPD. Um, and in the UK, you know, Labour um, uh, under under Stormer have been pretty critical. So, um, so I think it's 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 a bit more mixed there, but there are real. Concerns. I think about China, particularly this week with the sanctions, with a lot of the economic activity, and so um, this is a bit of a long winded answer. But my bottom line would be, the U.S. should be very tolerant of a diversity of approaches to responding to this challenge, and and Europe will do it in its own way. I think it will be largely outside the realm of military power, but I think you know. As long as, you know, uh, uh, if they have an honest and open debate about it, which I think they are having, I think they will gravitate toward and are are already gravitating toward a position where they will have um, sort of a form of balancing um, outside the kinetic uh, sphere, you know, where they push back with investment controls, political responses, greater unity, um, and they may disagree with the U.S. on occasion on that, and there'll be lots of zigzagging. On the way there, but I think they're headed there. Um, they're headed there now.
0: Well, let me just one follow up on that. I mean, because if you, let's go back to Asia. If you look at it, I mean, just recently, uh, you know, we have the uh, signing, at least not the ratification, but the signing of the RCEP. That's 15 countries that are, you know, that have the potential to really integrate more fully through the agreement, right? Uh, in Asia. Includes China, uh, includes Australia, for that matter. Um, you know that you pointed to, um, and where's the United States? Well, they're not even in the CPTPP, which is the alternative, maybe not alternative, but uh, other um, kind of integration uh, trade integration regime. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't quite see the the kind of choice that you're reflecting vis-a-vis, least Australia, being more broadly adopted in in Asia.
1: Well, I think you're actually proving my point in a way, right? Because um, my point is that with ORCEP and, and other types of relations with China, you know, the region still wants that, right? They still want to engage China, um, mm-hmm. but they also have real concerns they also want the us to play a larger role they also want to engage the us in balancing against china they did worry initially you know they thought they were a little worried that biden might not be as committed to that or they worried that you know democrats may not may want to pull back a bit i think those doubts have been all allayed and addressed you know and they're i think quite happy with the with the new approach but that's my point that they're Sorry, not. Sorry, the
0: new approach, just so I understand. The Biden listening.
1: approach of, you know, they want they wanted to see a continuing U.S. commitment to competing with China. To compete. Um, and how does the U.S. Compete. show that? Well, I think you see it already in just, and I know we're only a few months in, but um, I think you Turner. see it with just a huge intensity of activity, including with the Quad and the promise to work, you know, on this billion uh, vaccine in Southeast Asia. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we'll see more on the economic side. Um, I, I think that it's not, you know, the, the, the trade side and, you know, TPP um, and the successor to TPP is, mm-hmm. you know, that is, um, I think many people, you know, wanted that to happen, but I think we've moved past that at this point, right, for a lot of different reasons mainly domestically here and sort of concerns about the global economy and trade, that does not preclude a positive affirmative agenda for the region, including economically, you know? And so I don't see it as, you know, uh, TPP was never ratified. The region sort of went on its own. There's ORCEP there, you know, that shows the US has no cards to play and, Everyone's turning toward China like that's not what's happening mm. you know it, it, what's happening is yes they you know China's a big player they want to remain engaged but they also you know are looking to the United States and the US has lots of things it can do in that area short of a major multilateral trade agreement that's ratified by the Senate.
0: well uh, for sure although you know here we're looking at a, a regional agreement but there seems to be little appetite. On the part of um, uh, of this current administration at this point, which you pointed out is largely domestic politics. But nevertheless, the integration process goes on. And I'm not quite sure where you think the Quad, I mean, what what is the Quad? They had a meeting. Uh, it's not clear to me what the consequences of that meeting uh, are with respect to, you know, kind of. Uh, U.S. Uh, strategic p- policy it's certainly not. It's not economic at this point at all, right? And
1: well, I think you you saw a bit of it with the vaccine push. I mean, that's an amazing. Okay. That that is a very significant. Okay. Action, and I think it is a. Um, again, it's. I think it's. Uh, encapsulates what they want to think is best about their policy, right? Which is.
0: Okay. Um,
1: it's an affirmative, proactive positive thing that the democratic allies are doing together that has a china to dimension to it but that's just secondary right it's not it's they're doing it because there's a real need sort of in the region and and they're they're they're, you know they're doing that they're an effect of that is also to provide you know an alternative to to china's actions and diplomacy here as well Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not the main reason you know, so I think that they did that, I think, Alan, because they very much, I mean, I think they believed it was necessary on the merits. I think also in terms of the quad, they believed it was very important to have sort of concrete deliverables that showed it was about something, mm-hmm. you know, and that it was about something positive, you know, that you can be in favor of um, democracies working more closely together in Asia because it's a good thing and not just because we're worried about China, right? Okay. Like it should be. And this is, I guess, the big difference with the Trump administration and, uh, you know, is that um, done right, like this approach will, um, is, is more about us trying to get our system in that larger competition, functioning well, effective, delivering public goods, delivering for people, um, And, and that's something we should want to do anyway, right? That's something we should want to do anyway. So it's Mm -hmm. not, this should not all be about, you know, um, uh, sort of confrontational competition, right? This is, I think being aware that there are limits on universal cooperation and universal orders and trying to make sure that our sort of piece of it, you know, delivers and, and, and is effective and, you know, particularly at a, at a time like this one, there are a lot of different demands and problems to be solved.
0: Okay, okay. Well, I wanna thank you, Tom, for um, uh, sitting down with us and uh, exploring this uh, new American uh, foreign policy. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance in the future to do it again as we see it unfolding, so. Great,
1: Thanks, uh, thanks, Alan, this is a lot of fun. It is. Looking forward to the next one.